0: good morning everybody glad to see these front row christians up here there's room for more i know you feel you say you feel cramped but there's always room on the front row every church every bible study i love to hear jerry roberts pray i don't like for him to pray for me too early in the morning though last year he said he was going to pray for me to get up on time and he'd say, I started praying for you at 4.15. That's when I would wake up. Today, he let me sleep into 4.52, and I'm I'm getting him trained. Appreciate that. We are going to look at Psalm 1 ultimately, but I want to give some introductory comments on the Psalms as we kick off this study. I am very, very excited about this study of Psalms and your opportunity to hear about the Psalms taught by, not just by me, but by others too, because the Psalms, I could argue, have had the greatest impact in history of any of the biblical books, and yet they are the least studied. A number of years ago, someone came by my or sent me a letter, and she had uh, very thoughtfully, this is a visitor to our church, she was from another part of the country, and she had, she apparently traveled a, a great deal, and she had kept a chart of the books of the Bible from which she had heard sermons from all over the country, and she heard a lot from John, and she heard a lot from the parables, and she had a, a, an array of, of sermons from Old and New Testament, but I think she had something like two sermons she had ever heard on the Psalms. I've had the privilege of preaching through the Psalms, every Psalm, verse by verse, twice in my life, and I, I pray for a, another occasion, and uh, there is no study like it. Now I've given you some. I've given you some resources in the uh, on your table. The first page of it looks like it has a chart on it. I'm not going to go through this this part uh, in detail because it's self-explanatory. But I want you to have it for your own <coughs> resources. And those of you, uh, those of you wives listening by tape later on, we will make this available online too. But uh, you'll notice there I've listed the authors of the Psalms. Some of you may think it's just David, but uh, there are at least seven authors of the Psalms. I've given you uh, dates showing you the range uh, of uh, biblical history covered in the Psalms, 1400 B.C. to 400 B.C. There are different types of Psalms, Roman numeral three, prayers or lament, thanksgiving, praise, and so forth. <clears throat> the purposes of the psalms I'll cover in the, in, the message, <clears throat> in the message today, but I want you to see the life of Christ predicted in the psalms, many um, predictive prophecies. Psalms uh, quoted uh, a great deal in the New Testament, like uh, Isaiah, and then how they're organized. You will notice as we Study through the Psalter. There are five books, roughly 30 uh, psalms each. And it's interesting how these books correspond to the first five books of the Bible. The first first book uh, roughly corresponds to the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings and creation of the world, creation of man. Book two, Exodus and liberation of Israel. Book three, Psalms of worship, like the instructions in Leviticus, book 4. Psalms of sojourn, pilgrimage, like the book of Numbers in book 5, corresponds to Deuteronomy, the, the, the law of God. I hope that's a, a helpful resource to you. And uh, now I want to read Psalm 1. I want to make some further comments about why we study the Psalms, and then we'll dive into a verse-by-verse exposition Let's read Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that He does, He prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked. Will perish. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the encouragement of these men, young and old, men who have turned out early to study Your Word. We pray that we would hear from You, not from this pastor, but we come to hear from You We come welcomed by the Lord Jesus himself, who has promised to send that Holy Spirit who will bring to remembrance all things that you have taught us, including this psalm. Now, as we step into the gateway of the psalms, O Lord Jesus, usher us into them. Make us faithful not just to hear what is taught, but to do it. Make us faithful to turn away from our own devices and efforts to earn our righteousness and to fall headlong at the feet of Jesus, saying, Make us, make us, it won't happen unless you do it, make us righteous men. We prayed in the strong name of Christ and for his sake, and God's men said together, Amen. So, why the Psalms? Seems to me, as I said earlier, no single book of the Bible has made a greater impact on the Church of Jesus Christ of the world for that matter. Psalms are quoted very frequently in the Old Testament. Martyrs were thrown to lions and uh, burned at the stake, quoting the Psalms. Uh, In the Middle Ages, the ascetics. Uh, hid away in cloisters and monasteries to study the Psalms. John Hus quoted Psalm 31 as he was perishing. Martin Luther found justification by faith alone first in the Psalms and was preaching in the Psalms and Romans while when the Reformation broke out. Uh, John Calvin quoted Psalm 139, verses 9 and 10, often as he was suffering physically. And the Huguenots, French Huguenots, some of you descended from them, quoted the Psalms during their imprisonment. They quoted the Psalms during their pilgrimages, and they were able to quote them because they had memorized them by singing, even as our own Tim Russell knows every word of the Psalms because of his uh, history in the Reformed Presbyterian Church because they sing the psalms. The Bay Psalm book was the first book published in America. Why so popular? Why are the psalms so popular? Why is it true that, as in my upbringing, I grew up in a particular or came to faith in a particular theological subsystem that believed that the Old Testament wasn't applicable, so they only gave us a New Testament, but they did manage to pack tack on and psalms. (laughs) We can't get rid of the psalms. We flee to the psalms, don't we? Why? I'm going to give you six reasons. Six reasons the psalms are important, and six reasons you will find them a treasure as well. Psalms, first of all, the psalms are focused on God, not man. When we teach the psalms, when you preach through the psalms, you can't talk about yourself. They're focused on God. Not man. They're expressions of worship focused on the true God. This is the hymn book of the Old Testament. This is the hymn book of the people of God, not just in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and also in church history. Secondly, they increase our boldness in prayer. Uh, John Calvin said the Psalms have opened to us familiar access to God. There's not a man in this room, I don't believe, who could. Honestly, say before God, He doesn't struggle with prayer. And there are times when you struggle to know what to say in prayer, especially when you're suffering or when you're angry. And God is so secure in Himself that He has written us prayers to express our anger and our disappointment with Him when we don't have the words to say. Psalm 88, for one. Is a psalm with no resolution. It ends with that darkness is my closest friend. It's a complaint to God. It's a complaint saying, you have done this to me, and God wrote it. God said, you don't know what to say to me in your doubt, in your anger, in your frustration? Well, I've written a script for you because He wants us so much to come to Him. Number three, they give voice to a Christian's deepest grief and show him a way of escaping self it's hard to remain in your pit of self when you read the Psalms. Fourth, <clears throat> they provide profound theological aspect uh, uh, insight. They are the, the Psalms address every theological topic there is, every topic of life, every range of emotion. Of course, God has blessed us with a whole Bible, but if we had no Bible but the Psalms, it would be enough to lead us to Christ, to, gather away, to, get to, uh, to guide us through every portion of life, to give us instruction in every ethical command. Fifth, they're socially sensitive. They show us how to live in community, and they show us how to deal with each other. They show us how to minister to the poor, how to draw alongside the humiliated and the lonely and the oppressed. John Calvin said, in the Psalms we find an anatomy of all parts of the soul. And finally, they endure, why do the Psalms endure? Why why are the Psalms translatable into every language of the world? This is poetry after all, right? My Haitian brothers and sisters don't know uh, anything about John Keats or Percy Bysshe Shelley because those poems require uh, are based on rhyme in English and Western patterns of meter. But the Psalms don't depend on rhyme. And uh, while they have poetic devices in them, they are universally translatable. And so God has written this tremendous work of art in such a way that it reaches the soul of every human being, covers every theological topic, answers every part of life, and is translatable in an artistic, artistically attractive way in every culture. It's all inspiring not just to study the Psalms, it's all inspiring just to look at the Psalms. As a gift of God to us. So with that in mind, with that little bit of encouragement to stick with the psalms, let's look at verses one through three, or one through, or the whole book, one through, one, the whole psalm, one through six, and uh, in three parts of Psalm 1. A number of years ago, a man came to my church when I was a pastor in St. Louis. He, came to, he had uh, had a dramatic conversion to Christ. He was well known in our city. Uh, uh, but he was not famous. He was infamous. Uh, Nobody liked him except uh, politicians who were trying to win. He was one of those kinds of guys. Uh, He was a guy you wanted to hire if you wanted to win an election, but uh, there was nothing uh, beneath him. There was nothing that he was unwilling to do. But God, in his sovereign grace as he is prone to do, conquered this man brought him to Christ, and then of all churches, brought him to my church. We went to lunch uh, soon after he started coming, and I I asked him for a recollection of his life, and he uh, recounted a number of intriguing things, like playing professional hockey, from professional hockey to politics to the Federal Witness Protection Program in between. (laughs) And I said, uh, kind of at a loss for words for what to say, I said, wow, you have lived an interesting life." And he said, interesting, yes, happy, never. Interesting yes, happy, never. Maybe some of you could say that about your own lives. Maybe it's why you're here. You're interesting. What you do is interesting. Your life has been interesting, but happy, never. And maybe why you're not happy, maybe why you've never been happy is because you've never encountered the Savior that's described in this text. And maybe the reason you once were happy and are not happy now is because you've forgotten this way that is prescribed and described in Psalm 1. I want you to think about these three things as we look at these six verses, that there is only one way of happiness and we must pursue it, that uh, there is a way of irrelevance and uh, you must peruse it in order to avoid it. And uh, there is a great and infinite disparity between the two ways. and. You must profess it now and into eternity. Let's look at verses 1 through 3, this way of happiness that the psalmist describes for us. He says, blessed or happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So the first thing he says is that there is evidence of, you can find evidence in your life of whether or not you are on the way of happiness. And the first evidence is the things that you are not doing, the things that you are avoiding. These are evidences that you are on the way of happiness and not the way of irrelevance. And I want you to notice the progression or the devolution that occurs, the gradual decay that occurs, decline that occurs in these first three verses. Blessed is the man who does not... Walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. Now imagine it this way. Here is someone, first of all, who is walking along the way, and someone comes up to him, a counselor, someone offering advice, and he starts walking with him, he starts listening. Now, you say, well, that's not me, I'm not on the way so far, but wait just a minute. This word wicked can, the way this, it's translated wicked, but literally it's, it's loosed, one who is untethered, one who is not anchored in God's Word, one whose advice and insight and so-called wisdom and counsel come not from the Bible, but from any other source, That is a loosed person. So, it's not the person that obviously has horns on his head and is carrying a pitchfork or someone who looks like a witch or a warlock that is called a wicked person. This is is a loosed person. This is a person who gives advice and counsel, not from God's Word. It comes from their news source. It comes from the blogosphere. It comes from a business manual. It comes from their vast experience through the years. It comes from any number of sources, but it does not come first from God's Word. If you're listening to any counsel like that, if your counsel, your instruction, your insights into life and culture and the world are coming regularly from 24-hour news, for instance, or a daily newspaper that the whole business world listens to, or from your business partner, or your or your best friend, if it comes first from those sources, and that's the only counsel you're getting, you are getting wicked counsel. Are you walking in it? Are you listening to it? And then look at the next step that that happens. <coughs> They walk in the counsel of the wicked and stand in the way of sinners. So here they're walking along, they're listening to this counsel, and the counsel says, why don't you come with me? I've got a whole group of people gathered who who believe the same way, listen to the same things. Come to my club, come to my circle of friends, stay in my neighborhood stay with this group of people. They'll make you feel very comfortable because they all believe in the same thing. Come to my little echo chamber and just stand just stand on the outside. Don't you want to come in and sit with us? Just stand there and listen from the outside. The word translated uh, sinner is kataim. It means to miss the mark. All have kataim. That's Hebrew. In Greek, it would be a different word, but it's the same. It's, uh, it's, it's quoted in the, the New Testament, quotes the Old Testament. All have sinned, all have missed the mark. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So they are listening. They've listened to counsel that's cut off. Now they're starting to stand and listen to people who are consistently missing the mark of God's Word. what's the next step? It's to sit with them. To sit then in the seat of scoffers, it is to become party, a party to the same. It's to come through the door, sit down, live in the echo chamber with everybody else, and practice the same counsel and become one with them. And notice, to become one with them is to become a scoffer. You'll say, now, my friends, my friends, now, they don't listen to God's Word. They don't don't start with God's Word. But they're not scoffers. They don't make fun of Christianity. Maybe they never mention Christianity. But if they continue to espouse counsel and instruction and wisdom, quote, unquote, that is untethered from God's Word, then they are scoffing at God's Word exalting themselves and their insights above God and committing idolatry by putting themselves on the throne. The man who lives in happiness, the one who is blessed by God is the one who avoids that counsel from the beginning and then never has opportunity to stand in the way of sinners or, God forbid, sit in the seat of scoffers. Second thing we notice is that He not only avoids certain things, He does proactively the right things like absorbing God's Word. Verse 2, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates day and night. Now, one characteristic of the Psalms is parallelism. You have one line that says one thing and another line that says a similar thing, but those parallels accomplish different things. Sometimes they say exactly the same thing. At other times, they specify, they say even more specifically what was stated thematically in the first line. So, that's, that's the case here. It's a specification. His delight is in the law of the Lord. What do you mean his delight is in the law of the Lord? Well, I mean to say he, he meditates on it day and night. It's not that he goes around holding his Bible and say, I delight in God's Word. I am so happy to have a Bible, but he doesn't pay attention to it. It's not even that he delights to have a Bible and he he reads it every day. But rather, he delights in it, and the manifestation of his delight is that he meditates on it. He ruminates on it. He allows it to, to, he he has time to let it sink in. He not only reads it, but he listens to it preached in worship. He goes to Bible studies like this. He has his devotions. He ponders it. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Now you say, "Now wait a minute. What? I thought that we were set free from the law. I thought that we were <clears throat> that we were now in the period of grace." But uh, law is one of those. English words that we have allowed to obscure the biblical concept too. The word in Hebrew is Torah, and Torah just means instruction. Torah refers to the whole Bible. Torah itself is used in different ways. Sometimes, as in Joshua 1-7, it's used to refer just to the writings of Moses, but uh, in the New Testament, Jesus uses law or uses the word law to describe the Psalms. He obviously doesn't mean a legal code other times. In 2 Samuel it's used, or 2 Kings it's used to refer to the prophets. Torah is God's wisdom. Torah is God's word for all occasions. It's His gracious fatherly instruction but it is used according to our need sometimes it rebukes us sometimes it exhorts us sometimes it corrects us sometimes it comforts us sometimes it tell, tells us how to pray when we all but it is a, it is a book for all occasions blessed is the one who meditates on all of God's words for him he is the happy one. He does it day and night. Now, remember, this is, a, this is a hymn. This is being sung in worship. And we'll see in other places of the psalm, particularly Psalm 92, that the psalmist is assuming that the church is meeting morning and evening for worship. It's come to be an alternative, an option for us in the American church. To worship in the evening or not, but it is, I would say, impossible to be a serious disciple of Jesus Christ and not worship morning and evening on the Lord's day. It's been the practice of God's people throughout Scripture. You'll see it again in the Psalms. Look at it in Psalm 92, a song for the Sabbath day, a word for the morning, a word for the evening. Psalms 3 and 4, psalm for the morning, psalm for the evening. Sacrifices made in the morning, in the evening, twice on the Lord's day, uh, twice on uh, twice uh, uh, two, two uh, twice as many on the Lord's day. Throughout church history, they've worshipped morning and evening. And uh, here he says, "You should meditate on God's instructions morning and evening." And some of you say, I have, I have too much to do in my, I, I, my days don't end, they just start over. I don't have time. I doubt that that's true, but, but let's say it is. Let's say that you don't have any time Monday through Saturday, but God has given you a whole day by which you can bookend Psalm 1, the practice of Psalm 1 by meditating, ruminating on Scripture morning and evening. He absorbs God's Word. He avoids evil influence. He absorbs God's Word. He achieves His purpose in life. Verse 3, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in season. Whatever He does, and all that He does, He prospers. Isn't that what we want to be? Isn't our fear becoming irrelevant? Isn't our fear not doing what we are supposed to do now? or wondering, is there something I'm supposed to be doing and I'm not doing? I remember having that overwhelming fear in college and again in seminary, thinking, I don't even know the questions to ask at this stage of my life. I don't know, I don't know who to ask. What am I supposed to be doing now if if it's just a apparent to me. I will do it. Lord, here am I. Send me. But there's, there's so much to do, so much advice, so many things coming at me. What am I to do to accomplish fruit in this period of my life right now? He makes it very simple for us. He says, meditate on my word morning and evening and listen to what I have for you at this time in your life and just obey what I am giving you for each stage of life and you will bear the fruit that I want you to bear then. In other words, here is permission not just to dismiss the counsel (coughs) of the wicked, but here is permission to dismiss the the sometimes well-meaning counsel of so many people in your life who love you and have a wonderful plan for your life. It's their plan for your life. And here he says, you only need to know my plan for your life at this time of your life. I want you to put your nose in my book. I want you to listen to me. I've given you the structures in your life. I've given you the Lord's Day especially. You sit in worship, you will encounter me personally, and I will tell you what I am calling you to do at this time in your life, and if you do that, you will bear the fruit I want you to bear for this period of your life. It's a great relief. It's not easy. It's not going to be easy, but it's a great relief. I remember a man telling me, one of my teachers telling me one time, one of my mentors I said, uh uh, I, uh, I think that I may be, uh, how are you feeling, George? I said, well, I'm overwhelmed because I feel like I should be at this point. And he said, uh, you know, you need, to, you need to finish being 30 in your 30s before you get to your 40s. And that responsibility will not come to you until you're at least 40. So why don't you just live in your 30s for now? Asking God, what do you want me to be on this day at 31 and this later day at 32 and 62 and 82? This is the happy man, the one who listens to God's counsel avoiding the others by absorbing God's word. And then the promise is he will achieve God's purpose. Now, more quickly, we'll look at these. He just, he just takes what he has already said to us. He turns it into the negative, and he provides these warnings to say, this is what you do not want to be. If you listen to the counsel of the wicked and stand in the way of sinners and sit in the seat of scoffers, you will become irrelevant. Now, you might be relevant in your professional circles. You might be relevant on your street. You might be relevant for this period of time in culture, but you will be irrelevant at the great assize, at the great judgment, when God reflects on history. He says, verses 4 and 5, the one who is untethered, the the wicked again, not not just the, the one with horns on his head, but the one who is untethered from God's Rule from the lordship of Christ. This one is not so. That is, he will not be like a tree planted by streams of water, or bearing fruit in the season. But rather, he'll be like the chaff which the wind drives away. Now, in the old world, uh, threshing occurred this way: you took, uh, you, you gathered up everything, you put it on a threshing floor, you put it on a hard surface and a windy spot, and you took a winnowing fork. Uh, or a pitchfork, and you, you stuck it into the whole mass of stuff that you had piled there, weeds and, and wheat and so forth, and then you tossed it up in the air. And the light, dead, uh, un, uh, unuseful material would blow away, and the heavier heads of wheat or whatever the crop was would fall back to the threshing floor. And it's an image of judgment, judgment that occurs even in this life, where God throws lives up into the wind and says, let's see if they are glorified. You know, the Bible's word for glory is an interesting word. It means fat. It means heavy, weighty, Kavov. It even sounds fat all have sinned and fall short of the weightiness of God. And when they fall short of the weightiness of God, their lives become chaff, which the wind blows away. They are, T.S. Eliot's hollow men in the wasteland. And then secondly, he says, they will be not just empty and light and irrelevant, they will be charred. The wicked, the untethered, will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the seat in the congregation of the righteous. The judgment will be fiery as Jesus promised. These who are untethered to the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are not tethered to the Word of God, will face that judgment which He says will be unquenchable fire. And thirdly, look at the warning. This is a warning to churchgoers, too. He says to these who are even in the worship service, you may be sitting here in the congregation, but you're really like those weeds growing up in the crop, and the day will come when they'll all be gathered, and God will throw them up into the air, and those who are joined to Christ, they will be weighty enough to fall back down. Into the true congregation that will live with Christ forever. There's only one way to be that, that weighty, and that's to be joined to Christ. It's to despair of yourself, it's to despair of your wisdom and all other wisdom, it is to despair of your efforts to righteousness and say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner, save me, join me to yourself and cause me to be absorbed in your word possess my soul and my mind and then to drive it home he says i want you to i want you to profess that there are only two ways the disparity of these ways must be clear to us therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked will be lost forever. H.G. Wells said this very sad thing about his perspective on on human history. Man who began in a cave behind a windbreak will end in the disease-soaked ruins of a slum. Well, that's a pitiful view of history. But it is true of those who are lost, those who are untethered to Christ, untethered to His Word. They will end in the diseased, soaked ruins of a slum and forever in the burning slum of hell. But how different is the way of the righteous? He is known by the Lord. Just think about the the way the Bible promises we are known. It says in Psalm 46.1, He knows us, therefore He is our refuge and strength. Psalm 91, He knows us, therefore He covers us with His feathers. He is our fortress and help in time of need. He watches over you. He will neither slumber nor sleep. Psalm 121, the moon shall not strike thee at night, the sun by day. He is your righteousness, the protection of your right hand. It sounds like the shepherd, right? In John 10, the one anticipated by Psalm 23, the one who is absorbed in God's Word, the one who is tethered to Jesus Christ is one who is known by the Lord, known intimately by Him so that He gives you the instruction you need, the promises you need, speaks the truth to you, you need so that you will fulfill His purposes for you, bearing fruit in season. Who would not want that? Who wants to be known generically by somebody else whose opinion really ultimately does not matter? Who wants to be accepted into the circles of those whose opinion does not exercise a feather's weight on God's scale of judgment? Who would not rather be known by the one who made you? who crafted you in your mother's womb, who says, I know the plans I have for you, to give you a hope and a future, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. This is the way of the righteous, the one that must be professed, the opposite of which one must peruse. The way of the righteous is the one that must be pursued. There was a Bible teacher named Joseph Flax who many years ago was teaching in Palestine then, and uh, he was teaching a group of unbelievers or, or people who were seekers, and it was composed of Jews and Arabs. They were all gathered in this little Bible study. And he opened Psalm 1, and he read it to them, and he, he explained it, mostly like I have now, and he asked them, who do you suppose this blessed man is? Who is David describing? And somebody said, uh, hmm, maybe, it was, uh, maybe it was Adam. No, it can't, can't be Adam. Remember, he ate the forbidden fruit. Oh, I see. Maybe, somebody else said, maybe it was Abraham. Abraham, father of, of Israel. Maybe it was Abraham. No, it can't be Abraham. Abraham didn't obey the Lord at first. Abraham lied about his wife. Abraham's faith was faltering. That's not the blessed man here, bearing fruit in its season all the time. Well, uh, I have an idea. It, David wrote it. It must be David. David, they all laugh. How could it be David? Adulterer, murderer, the blessed man? And then an Arab held up a New Testament. He said, I, I don't know. I've been reading this little book. And it, it describes one Jesus of Nazareth. And from everything I read about Him, it, it, it sure resembles what I find in Psalm 1. Maybe it's Jesus. Well, it is Jesus. There is only one who has lived this way impeccably. There's only one who has never listened to the counsel of the wicked. There is only one who has always borne fruit in his season without fail. There is only one whose life is stable enough and pure and righteous enough that it can withstand the fires of God's searching judgment. This is Jesus Christ described in this psalm This is Jesus Christ who welcomes you into the study of the Psalms, who stands at the doorway, the threshold of the Psalms, and says, Brothers, friends, I want to take you into not just a bunch of more, bunch of do's and don'ts and and principles for successful living, I want to take you into my life. And if you attach yourself to me, you receive my, not just my one-time gift of righteousness, but you allow me to unite my life to yours. You come to those, to those means of grace I've established for you, for me to, to breathe constantly new life into you, especially corporate worship by which I promise to come personally into your presence and teach you through my word to re revisit the gospel in all its parts, all through the worship service, to feed you with the sacraments and impart to you more and more the accomplishments of my personal human life. I am the one who will cause you, by including you, by uniting you, hiding you in me, I will cause you to be this blessed man, to live in happiness into all eternity. Psalm 1 says, come to Jesus. That's the only way of real happiness. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank You for meeting us personally this morning. We pray You would impress upon us afresh all the means of grace You have given to us by which to impart Your life to us, especially worship. I thank You, Lord, for these men who are here and pray that they would not just partake of the supplemental vitamins of Bible studies like this, but they would come to the full meal of worship morning and evening, as the psalmist imagines in this text and throughout. And that they would be expedited in their sanctification, that they would, that they would. That they would uh, make use and imbibe huge doses, concentrated doses of gospel vitamins, the means of grace you have provided for us by which you pour your life into us. Make us blessed men even as we cling to the only true blessed and righteous man, even Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and God's people said, amen.